You are listening to the Curiosity Podcast, a podcast aimed at equipping future changemakers with the skills that they need to thrive. We discuss business frameworks, exponential technologies, mental health, and living the life that you want to lead. We release an episode every second Thursday and can be found at curiositypodcast.ca. Hello and welcome back to the Curiosity Podcast. Today we are joined by Joanne MacArthur, who I literally could not be more excited to chat with. I reached out to her and I was not expecting a response, but I'm so excited to to get to talk to her on our podcast today. So Joanne is an award-winning photographer and author. She documents our complex relationships with animals around the globe, and her work has taken her to over 60 countries. In 2019, she founded We Animals Media, which are media collections of animals used for food, fashion, entertainment, and experimentation. Joanne's books include We Animals, Captive, and Hidden Animals in the Anthropocene. Her photography and writing has been published extensively and globally. Her images have been used by hundreds of media outlets. And Joanne recently won the COP26 photography competition, which is absolutely incredible. So a huge congratulations. And thank you again for joining us. If you want to introduce yourself or add anything, that would be great. Uh, And we'll get into a few questions. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, both of you. I do want to add something. When people read my bio, what's playing in the back of my mind is couldn't do it without this person, couldn't do it without that person. It takes a village to get these stories out into the world. And uh, what used to be me with a camera is now me and 14 staff. We Animals now has 75 contributors around the world and we're building animal photojournalism And uh, so it's, while it's nice to, you know, get kudos and all this stuff, it really is me and a heck of a lot of people. I just get all the glory. It's not fair. (laughs) That's awesome. And thank you so much for being here. Your work and your photography is incredible. So we're really curious where your love for photography began. Was it something in particular that sparked this interest in capturing photos to specifically inspire change for the problem of animal exploitation? Of course, you're curious. I love how you started that. (laughs) Perfect word for a perfect podcast. Um, Now, um, you know, there were two things happening in tandem. I always had a a great compassion for animals. And my parents didn't try and snuff that out of me. So if I wanted to walk the dog that was locked up in a backyard, they let me do that. And, you know, if I felt sad about the animals in the zoo, they let me feel those things. And so... I always had that, but I always had a total obsession with the still image. It captured, you know, it captured my life and my family's life. Those were the, uh, my early interactions with pictures. They captured history and they captured something meaningful. And that sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Like it's not so glorious, but um, really that's what pictures do. They capture history, they influence people, they make us feel things. And that's very powerful. And when I realized that the stories of animals, animals I cared so much about were just totally unrepresented, not so much pets, not so much wildlife, but all of these other animals, I realized I had this amazing tool in my hand because I had start to become a photographer that I could use to enlighten people, to educate, to illuminate all of these cliche words that we use for photography, uh, shine a light on 
that's what I started doing. Literally, sometimes I was uh, going into, well, many times I've gone into factory farms at night to illuminate the lives of, of who's there, who's living there, who's dying there, and so on. And so this has taken me on a journey now that's been about 20 years. Wow, that is amazing. And what you're doing must be very, very difficult work, but also very fulfilling. And it's so inspiring to, to hear about. And now We Animals Media is the world's leading animal photojournalism agency with this mission to document the stories of animals in the human environment. And I'm curious, like, what made you actually launch this specific project? And did it turn into what you expected? Or does it look different than what you initially may have envisioned? Because I know projects like this, especially, you know, with the time that's passed, uh, a lot can change than the, the initial the initial dream there. Well, I love that question, because I do want people to know that I didn't set out with a grand mission. In fact, all I wanted to do was chase stories and how to do that and how to get published. So, uh, you know, at the time I was studying English and geography at university. Uh, I liked those things, that's why I did them, but I like didn't really care that much. I hadn't found my passion yet. And then when I started just like, actually I took an elective class, uh, black and white printing. And on day two of that class, I, I kind of knew what I was gonna follow for the rest of my life, but it doesn't mean I had a grand vision. What it meant was that I started taking a lot of pictures showing them to people, uh, doing internships with photo editors and uh, TAing the photo class at university, and really just concentrating on the few months ahead. Like, okay, let's make some money so I can save up to do a project that I want to do about animals. And, and then, you know, showing the photos to editors and just building, building, building. I think the longest plan I've ever had was about 18 months. And yeah, and I knew that I wanted to do a certain number of trips and expose a certain number of stories. But it was um, it was really in the later years that I had to get really strategic and know that it's one thing to be chasing animal stories globally, but if too many of them are ending up on my hard drive or in the cloud and people aren't seeing them, what is the point? Because the point for me was to illuminate the lives of others. And so that's when... Um, I started, I set up a Patreon so that, you know, people could donate $5 a month, $10 a month, $100 a month. And uh, up until that point, my wedding photography and my corporate photography was paying for the documentary work, but I was able to slowly do less of that and do more of the documentary work. But in all of this, I had to work really hard to, to build my skills, learn how to be an entrepreneur and and follow my passion really which is such a pleasure i have to say though the work i do is really painful and difficult because i see a heck of a lot of suffering i feel very privileged to be able to do it and privileged to have the support that i have uh, financially and psychologically and otherwise uh, so that we can get these images out into the world so now we have a longer plan now we have like two-year strategic plans and um you know, a budget and all these things that one needs to be successful in the work they do. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And I think there's so much to learn from that, because especially in like high school and university, it's hard to know your plan, like what you're going to do long term. And so I love how you had like a mission and you had like, you knew things you liked, but you weren't sure like how to make a plan around it. And you just figured it out along the way. So I feel like for myself, even right now, like I'm like trying to figure out what I want to do long term. So like keeping those things in mind, I feel like is so important. 
And then I also really like how you mentioned you really like story capturing. And that's something that really spoke to me when looking at your photography, because it really made me think about the animals that were in the pictures and like the story that they're living. And so it must be really difficult to capture those photos because the experiences of these animals sometimes is very emotionally, like it takes an emotional toll. So what effect did the wet market have on you personally and how did you cope with it? Mm. Yeah, I've been to several wet markets over the years and I wonder what picture you're looking at specifically. It's possibly the turtle. Uh, You could be looking at the fish tethering as well. Um, Well, I will say that, so what you're describing or what you're looking at there, the turtle picture that I mentioned is of turtle after turtle after turtle uh, having their shells cut off of their backs and they're uh, used for meat. And I was photographing this over and over. And of course, one could not go through more pain than, than something like that. And this is strangely, very few people <laughs> do this. In their, What's your career? Oh, I photographed death and suffering. Um, this is what I have to do. And this is when I have to have the steadiest hand because of course, what I want to do is leave. What of course, what I want to do is scream and like end it all and tell everyone to stop. But I have witnessed millions of animals and I, I can't save them all. And I wish I could. And so what I do is with a steady hand and try and regulate my breathing and stay calm is to be friendly with the people who are around me and say truthfully, wow, this is really not something you see every day. Can I film or can I photograph? And then those images of violence and and brutality do get seen and shared. There's a lot to be said about um, not showing images of graphic violence, but they do have their place when they are accompanied with conversation and some handholding. And um, I don't take these pictures just to paralyze people, which often people feel paralyzed when they see such graphic violence. Uh, it's about ushering a conversation. And um, and certainly that image has has done that quite a bit. It's in my book, Hidden. Um, it, uh, it gets shared on socials all the time. It's been published. And uh, the reason I did a book is because I want these images, like the one you've mentioned, and many more, to have a historical space. Uh, images go by very quickly on social media. Yes, they go viral and that's great. But when you make a book, you're saying this has value and this deserves to be memorialized. And so that's what we did with this book. It's a memorial, it's a testament, it's a historic uh, chronicling of what is and, and should never again be. Thank you for, for sharing that. I have seen that photo and I've also seen a bunch of other photos you've taken because I have a few copies of your book in my house uh, and it is very, very difficult to see, definitely. But I also think it can act as like a wake up call to a lot of people. And it's very important work that does need to be shared because this is such a crucial, crucial problem. And it's easy to kind of pretend it doesn't exist. But then when you actually see these photos, then you are like humanizing um, what's actually going on. And you are seeing the animals going through this firsthand. And that is a lot more difficult to turn away from than just cheering 
animal abuse because that's one thing to hear but then to actually see something and to have an image accompanied with it um that is when it it can be very difficult and also uh change people's actual behaviors um and something else that i wanted to ask you about is i know one very difficult part of your work must be the the emotional toll it takes on you but something else i was thinking about was the resistance that you likely face that may also be a challenge and so as a photographer capturing this abuse, what is a response that you receive from people who are involved in these systems and may own the spaces where the exploitation occurs? And do you usually face resistance in those kinds of situations? Oh, you said so much there that I want to go back to as well. You talked about turning away. And uh, that's one of our taglines at We Animals is please don't turn away. It's, uh, it's gentle, it's very Canadian, isn't it? To say please, and, uh, it's very polite. And, and we do that because people have an idea of who activists are and how we're going to behave and that we're gonna shout. And I mean, there's certainly a lot to shout and be angry about, but it's, it's true that, uh, yeah, as photojournalists, we just don't want people to turn away. And what I love is that animal photojournalism is just part of a greater puzzle that we're all working on that you're working on right now, um, you know, in this interview and disseminating this work, but we have, you know, we have academics and we have journalists and we have scientists and lawyers, and it's pretty incredible to see all of us working together in smarter ways uh, to get people to not turn away. Um, but to your question of resistance, and pardon me if I've forgotten part of the question, but you can always bring me back to it. Um, there's a lot of resistance to having someone like me around. Uh, industries know that if how they treat animals up close and personal is seen, that uh, people would have a problem with it. Uh, we choose not to see it. I think a lot of us know that there's some problematic things happening. Um, but uh, we also really are quite addicted to our cheap meat and our, our culture of eating meat and, and so on. And so we do want to turn a blind eye and industries certainly want, don't want me there. Uh, that's why there is ag-gag in Canada now, which are agricultural gag laws that prevent people like me from going to places of animal exploitation or even animal use uh, in some provinces here and in many of the states in the US. You can't even shoot a fact, you can't even photograph a factory farm from the road, from public property. That would be considered a criminal offense. And so these industries have powerful lobbyists and they get these bills passed, which are often eventually overturned because they're deemed unconstitutional. However, uh, I do have to deal with these. For example, in Ontario, I could be charged thousands and thousands of dollars. I could face jail time by photographing animal industries. So yes, lots of resistance. Uh, it's often why I work at night, unfortunately. We wear biohazard suits and we're very careful. Security team, we go in, document and leave. Um, I wish I didn't have to, I hate it and I find it really scary and, and stressful. But um, my, my loyalty is, you know, despite me liking people and not wanting to lie to people, my loyalty is to uh, the othering, the, the others that we have done in all of this othering. Um, all of these others who don't have a voice, who people don't know about and who are suffering. So that is why I take the risks that I do uh, yeah, with NGOs, 
I've done it in over 60 countries now. It's, uh, it feels really insane. Insane is a good word for that. Um, my life is really different from others. Like I, you know, I sneak around and tell these horrible stories um, that need to be told. And I'm just hoping that, well, that we can all continue to work together to end these industries, at least curb these industries. We're seeing that happening. And the laws should be that these industries are completely open. I mean, after all, they are providing us with the food that we eat. Um, and places that that grow food should be totally open, not totally closed. That's a really long answer, and I'm not even sure I answered all of it. No, it was a great answer. And definitely what you said about like turning a blind eye to these situations is so true because it's so easy to go to a supermarket from my perspective and like a lot of people around me just buy food and not think about like, where does it come from? How does it occur? So that's why I feel like your work is so, so important. And thank you so much for, for doing that. And the mass production of animals for consumption is just insane. Like the percentage of food that is wasted upon the consumption is, is crazy. So I have some stats here. So from 1961 to 2009, uh, this is like the percentages of food that was wasted based on the total amount produced. So for dairy products, it's like 27%. For eggs, it's at 21%. For red meat, it's around 40%. It's crazy. And like the suffering that goes into that is insane and then it's just wasted so it's just it's horrible so what do you think we can do to stop producing so much excess animal produce especially since so much of it is going to waste yeah i made a long post about that about that on facebook this week because um we can as consumers with all food and all like produce i, I hate to call animals food but they are grown for that we can just be so much more selective and like use what's in your fridge, like use it up instead of just going out to buy what you want every single day. Um, there's enough food to feed the world, but millions and millions of people are hungry. Uh, not only because uh, food is sort of wrongly allocated and overpriced and wasted, but also we grow a lot of food to feed to animals. And then we feed uh, then we eat the animals. But if we cut out the middleman, the animal, we could take you know those crops and grow different kind of crops that are great for humans and live happy and healthy lives. There is a sanctuary in Australia called Edgar's Mission, and their motto is, "If we could live happy and healthy lives without harming others, why wouldn't we?" And it's so true. I just love it. Um, yeah, and I, I think. I remember one thing that you were asking about coping. We'll have to make sure we uh, loop back to that because I do want to answer that as well. Yeah, I love that. No, I think that's very true. Christina and I did a project on food waste last year, actually, um, for like this competition that the government of Canada was putting on. And we had to go through so many statistics on food waste and it was absolutely crazy. It was like mind baffling how much food is wasted every year around the world. Um, and some other things that we were researching were like more innovative solutions. I know a very big technology in this space is cellular agriculture, which is like the production of animal source foods from cell culture. So I was wondering if you've done any research on this and 
also just your general thoughts on this in terms of how it may influence the future and how it might influence the agricultural industry if it meant that humans could still get their meat because that's the thing with humans that they like the taste of meat so they're going to keep buying it but if they can get that without actually having to you know kill animals in the process and if you could get it from this more innovative technological process ah i love it uh going back though because um, just a moment ago, I referred to animals as food and I sort of went, Ugh, I hate calling them food, but that's how we raise them. And about this food waste, I do wish we could get more of a handle on the fact that it's animal waste, it's individuals. And what, when it becomes really visceral for me is, you know, those like rotisserie chickens that you can buy for five bucks at Loblaws, they're in a little plastic container with a handle and like um, or like a whole fish and we, we like pick at these things or like, you know, we give them to someone who's a picky eater and we have a bite and like the whole thing gets thrown in the garbage. I just wish that, or even part of it gets thrown in the garbage. Like it's not a thing. It's not food. It's an individual. And that's where I come at it from an animal photojournalist. I'm always trying to show the individuals caught in these systems that there are individuals who make up the billions that we eat every day. And so that's also why I take food waste so personally, because it's individual lives that we're, that we're talking about. But I think I'm soapboxing a little bit. Um, you were asking about, yeah, cell ag, and I'm all for it. I'm all for these technologies that can attempt to replicate what humans want, because I think we're going to solve these uh, eco problems and the problem of the violence faster than waiting for people to um, change their minds, make more compassionate decisions, because we know that most of us, like we just want what we want and we'll find excuses to, to have what we want. Um, you know, we're, we're all culpable with that, myself included. And, um, and so how can we get people what they want? They want something tasty and juicy and, and they want the real thing. Um, veggie burgers are great. Oh my God. Beyond burgers and beyond sausages are amazing. I love them. I wish everyone would just switch to those because they're cheaper to make. However, uh, cell ag is exciting and it's one of the pieces of the puzzle. I think that it's not going to solve everything, but it's one of the things. And in fact, I'm, I'm so excited about it that we animals media has gone to California to photograph, uh, companies who are, who are doing it. And so, um, I got, I actually tasted salmon for the first time in about 20 years because it was uh, grown in a lab and, and that's ethical. I have no problem with uh, having a bite of that. And so it was really interesting to have a bite of cell-based uh, salmon after 20 years and, and see if it was like what I remembered. Uh, all the power to them. There are a lot of philanthropists who are putting money towards this. And there's a lot of money in tech that can go towards this. Um, ultimately, I mean, uh, I, it might always be a little bit fringe. Uh, my hope is that we can all come around to continuing to eat more whole foods, organic whole foods. Um, you know, cell lag is probably going to be just fine for you, but, uh, like I see that I see the solution quite easily. Right. And I, what I said earlier about, um, just like cutting out the middleman and growing fantastic, healthy crops that we can all eat. I do wish that we would move towards that sooner, but uh, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. 
cellular agriculture definitely does seem like it could be something interesting down the line. I definitely don't think it's going to solve the entire problem, and I don't think it's going to be here, like, now. It, it'll definitely take a few years to, to get here, but it's interesting, at least, that we have that potential avenue down the line. And actually, how I find out how I found out about it um, and how I started doing a little bit of research into it was that Christine and I were both in this program called the Knowledge Society, which is, like, all about youth tackling problems like world problems using technology uh and i wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the role of youth because our target demographic for this podcast is young people and the next generation they will be at the forefront of change and they're also going to have to make environmentally sound decisions and i also think that we're seeing that youth really do care about problems like climate change um I think it's very important to infuse this respect and passion in young people for topics like animal rights. So what would you say to students listening to this episode and how can they get involved and contribute to the animal advocacy movement? Mm. Well, I do have questions for you about that. Uh, I do put a lot of uh, hope and optimism in youth and technology Um, young people have to care about the huge problems facing us in a way that other generations didn't because the the situation wasn't as bad. Um, But I don't have my finger on it. Like, I don't know if many more youth are galvanized or if they're not. Um, I worry about the opposite effects of technology. Uh, We are all very, very addicted to our machines and um, what is that taking away from our lives? What is it taking away from like our, our will and our, our desire to be out in the world? I, I don't know. Um, now, there was someone from a young woman from India who sent me this fantastic badass email. Uh, she, I think she was 13 at the time. And she's like, I love what you're doing. Um, I have a proposal. Uh, why don't you start a youth group for we animals? And you know, you guys aren't doing TikTok, so we can do TikTok. We can do storytelling there and continue what you're doing. And I was like, oh yeah, like we could do uh, we animals youth, which is way like sounds a bit religious, but like still it sounds really cool. It's the way forward. So I have this dream of starting like with her, or like letting her start, letting young people start a a branch. Um, for like much younger people and how they use technology. Like, I don't know how young people use technology, but they do. So how cool would it be to have a branch of We Animals that is is for youth? And that's one of the billions of solutions that are out there. We can create projects, we can be entrepreneurs. I mean, in fact, whatever whatever we like doing, we can, own that skill to make the world a better place. I'm absolutely sure of it. And maybe in a roundabout circuitous kind of way, but we can even just do whatever we're doing to make the world a kinder place. Uh, We can start with ourselves, as we know. I know a lot of us feel unempowered, but nevertheless, if we all made kinder choices, small ones, large ones, every day, the world would be a kinder place and a safer place. So we can start with doing what we can on the day-to-day. But we can also, you know, whether we want to be a lawyer or an artist or a teacher, any of those things, we can can turn our lens to um, telling stories and doing things that help others. And I mean, that is where there's a lot of satisfaction in life, I will say. The days that I feel best 
are when I have been generous with others, generous with my time, generous in my thinking, um, generous in the acts that I can do. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I found a way. I, I had no idea what I was going to do. As I said, I just loved pictures. I loved helping animals. And, and I found a way because I saw that there was a need. And I think if we look uh, and we don't have to look hard, we'll see that there's a need. And and yeah, and it's a joy, isn't it? Like it's a joy to to help. It really is not. Uh, it's it's not cumbersome. It's uh, it's a joy. I hope more people, more and more and more people, know that. For sure, and I really would like to circle back to your point on technology, and especially with like its effect on youth, because technology is interesting. Because in a sense, it like desensitizes you to things. I feel like because you're just stuck in your phone or on your computer, but also it can like tell stories with photography and with videos and stuff. So. Some of your books, so Captive and We Animals, they explore zoos and aquariums and how we animals, as in humans, interact with those animals, which are in cages. Um, and it invites people to reflect on how we observe or ignore the ones, the animals across bars or across the moat and on the other side of the glass. So with technology, do you think that uh, technologies like virtual reality um, and augmented reality could step in to replace zoos and aquariums because in essence in my opinion zoos and aquariums are meant so you can observe animals that you would never see in the wild but with these technologies it would be ethical because there would be no real animals but it would still be like an experience so did you ever think of these kind of replacements um, and if it would be possible to do that well, in fact, people are thinking of those replacements. And one of the best examples that I can think of is the Detroit Zoo. And they are one of these world-class zoos, um, but, but world-class zoos tend to still have really small spaces and want to maintain the status quo and make a certain amount of money to stay afloat. But some of them are really being innovative and thinking about, well, maybe we should be rescuing animals instead of just allowing animals to breed. Um, there's always going to be a need for a space for, for animals. And, um, and so zoos can turn into places of compassionate conservation, uh, wildlife rehab centers. So the Detroit Zoo, uh, at last time I talked to them, had rescued over 30,000 animals. Yeah, and they had fewer animals so that they could all have more space, but, they do all sorts of cool things, but to your point about technology, they have a 4D theater, and and it's so it's really immersive. That's the point. You sit there and you're watching an African savanna and you're watching a rhino, and but it's a positive story about an anti-poaching unit, and they need to help this rhino, so they have to actually dart the rhino first. So you see the gun pointing and you see the animal darted, so the animals can be sedated. But when you hear the gun go in the seat, you get like a little like something pops out of seat. And so everyone goes, ah, because you feel like you're the one who got the dart. <laughs> and I'm like, there's a part where you're walking through the savannah, but there are things brushing along your legs under the seat. And then it's like smellow vision as well. So it smell, they have like smells coming out of the walls, like in spurts, like, so you smell the, the, the flora and the fauna. It's really, really cool. So we can, we can be innovative that way. And it's so much fun. It doesn't take anything away. Um, from our experiences, if anything, it enhances our experiences. Um, people have said to me, well, one, one man wrote to me and said, how is my child supposed to have an experience with animals if uh, you, you want all zoos to close down? Close down? And um, 
well, we think that we have the right. What, what right do we have to keep animals captive just so that we can see them? And who is to say that the best education is seeing them with, you know, in real life with our own eyes? If anything, I think it's objectifying them. I'm sorry, of course it's objectifying them, but it's teaching us that objectifying them is okay. It's normalizing it. Whereas we can have exceptional animal experiences in theaters, at sanctuaries, conservation centers, we can volunteer. And you know, if we don't get to see gorillas and polar bears in real life, that's okay. We should be happy. We should be happy that we can't. That's a great point. Uh, I think with zoos, especially like people want to go for their own, you know, entertainment and they're like, you know, well, I want to go and see the animals and I want to take my kids to go and see the animals because they need to have this kind of experience. But it's literally not our right <laughs> to be able to do that. And it would be really weird if we were sitting in like a glass like box and there were like a bunch of people walking by and like observing us all day. I don't think that would be the most fun experience. And so it's definitely objectifying animals through zoos. And that's been something I've kind of been researching on and off over the past few years and just kind of staying up to date with the latest news there, because I do think that it's, it is something that really does objectify animals in a lot of ways and has a lot of weird points for concern. So thank you for, for talking about that. If I can uh, ask, if I can ask you something, yeah. Do you think young people have an innate compassion for the animals in zoos? And I ask that because I did. I used to feel sad. I used to feel kind of embarrassed for them, you know, like sitting there on display, no autonomy, um, no way to hide. And they have all these really stereotypic, awful behaviors as a result of, you know, being so bored for years. And it really like upset me as a kid. What do you guys think? Like, do you think people feel that? Um, in my like personal perspective, um, the thing that really brought me to think about how animals are treated in zoos and in aquariums is is books and like movies and stories because it kind of showed the the nasty sides of the zoos and stuff like that. Because especially when I was little, when I would walk through zoos, it would just be like, oh, they're they're having a good time. Like that was my perspective as a kid. I didn't know what was happening, especially behind closed doors. So I think those stories in in movies and in books are are so important because they teach you the other side. But Nyla, what do you think? Yeah, I did not really go to the zoo very often or at all when I was younger because my dad um, was kind of like, zoos are not the greatest. Actually, in like grade one, we had to do like a debate on if zoos should be abolished or not. And then that's when my dad was telling me like all about these zoos. And I started reading all these articles, you know, for, for formulating my debate. But it also like I did definitely formulate my own opinion. I was like, I don't want to go to zoos. Um, and so I didn't really go to zoos too often. I think the last time I went was maybe my cousins wanted to go or something. So I went with them. But um, I do think that like when I was going through the zoo then, because I was older when I went like with my cousins, I think it was only a few years ago. Um, it was for like his birthday or something. Um, and especially because I'd done all this research and now I was seeing these animals, it did really make me feel like sad for the animals because I was like, they're literally like enclosed in these spaces. And there are so many children like walking around, pointing their fingers, trying to go against the glass, like trying to like talk to the animals or whatever. And I just felt very bad um, about 
how this has become the norm of like entertainment for children and how this really is a violation of animal rights. And I think there's a lot of things that are wrong with zoos. I know that in some aspects, it can be like you're rescuing animals, which is good, but I think you can rescue animals and not like show them off in a zoo. They don't really have to come hand in hand. Uh, so for me personally, it's kind of been something I have not been in support of um, from a young age just because of like the environment I was in and especially my dad who is like showing me these kinds of articles. Um, so I don't know if I'm coming from a slightly biased point of view, but I know the last time I went, it, I definitely was feeling for, for the animals and definitely not in support of it. So yes, awesome. <laughs> well, I mean, that was kind of our, our last question for you, but uh, it was a really, really great conversation. And at the end of every episode, we always love to ask our guests for three action items for our listeners based on what we talked about today. Uh, so I was wondering if you have those three action items. I have so many action items for you all. And one of them is to not buy animals as pets. And so it's something that we can all do. And uh, it, we, can, uh, we can adopt animals, we can rescue animals instead of um, purchasing them. Like we might purchase a, a breed of animal that we really want. And yet there are thousands just languishing who are perfectly good animals, like my dog right here. Um, yeah, so it's something to think about and not just dogs and cats, but lizards and birds and all of these animals that we keep uh, captive. I think it's a good one to start with because we've talked a lot about captivity today. And onward from that is reinforcing what we've just said about uh, visiting places of compassionate conservation and wildlife centers and sanctuaries and giving them our support our volunteer hours, our dollars, instead of zoos and aquaria. And we can keep, continue to speak up for the animals, uh, like Kiska, she's an orca who's been at Marineland for uh, almost five decades now. She lives alone and ironically living in Friendship Cove. She's lived alone for 11 years. And um, there's so many animals like Kiska who need us to speak up for them. Um, the hope is that she will be rehomed to a whale sanctuary, the first ever whale sanctuary in the world in Nova Scotia. So, you know, we can speak up, we can act, we can eat fewer animals, we can eat no animals. Uh, back to that awesome quote by um, Edgar's mission, if we could live happy and healthy lives without harming others, why wouldn't we? And uh, it is quite a joyous thing to do. And as I said about, you know, finding my way into animal advocacy and photography, I didn't have a plan and I want people to not feel the pressure, like young people to feel the pressure of having to know what their career is going to be. And um, there are so many ways of doing things and uh, you know, like I don't have a PhD in this stuff. I have a bachelor's degree and then followed my passion and there's just so many ways to do things. You don't have to know everything, but whatever you choose to do, it can be tied into making the world a better place. Uh, I do that through animal photojournalism and the two of you are doing it in many ways, which is just so gorgeous to see. Um, yeah, I, 
how's that? <laughs> that is perfect. Those are great action items. And thank you so, so, so much again for your time today. I know you are incredibly busy, but it was so amazing to, to get to hear more about your work and get to have this conversation with you. So thank you. Uh, and we really appreciate you joining us tonight. That was a lot of fun. And I look forward to speaking with you again sometime soon, I hope.